All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Fatal Conceits podcast, dear listener. Uh, if you've not already done so, please head over to our Substack page. You can find us at bonnerprivateresearch.substack.com, where we have hundreds of articles, research reports, and many more conversations just like this on the Fatal Conceits, uh, Fatal Conceits podcast tab at the top of the page, uh, where we talk about everything from uh, high finance to lowly politics and everything in between. It is my pleasure today to welcome a gentleman to the show whose work I've been reading on and off for years. And as we were just talking about before we uh, press record here, our, our email correspondence has gone back over a decade. So it'll be great to connect again. Uh, Vitaly Kastanelson is the author of Contrarian Edge. Uh, head over to his website there. He's got plenty of excellent material, uh, mostly about investing, but uh, a few life lessons in there, some political musings, lots of travel stuff. Uh, he's also the author of two investing books, Active Value Investing and The Little Book of Sideways Markets. And most recently, uh, a book that I hope we get to chat about today, Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life. So first of all, Vitaly, welcome to the Fatal Conceits podcast. I feel like it's long overdue. <laughs> I know, John. Joe, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, we're looking forward to it. Outstanding. And as I, uh, as we were also just mentioning, if this if this background looks familiar, uh, you were recently on a podcast uh, with uh, Anya Leonard, who runs the Classical Wis Wisdom website. Uh, we sit about ten feet away from each other. Being husband and wife, we share a home office. So if this is a little bit of deja vu, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no, that's familiar. Absolutely. All right, so. So there's lots of stuff I want to get to, Vitaly, and you, you cover such a, a wide breadth of, uh, of subject matter in your in your musings. And again, people should head over to Contrarian Edge to, to uh, check out your work there. But uh, for readers who are just sort of coming upon your work for the first time, uh, I think they might be interested just in a bit of a Vitaly origin story because it's a it's a very interesting one. You you put it as uh, born in Russia, made in America, which I thought it was a very entertaining juxtaposition. How did you, uh, how did you make that journey and and come to that distinction? Yeah, so I decided so today I live in Denver and I have mm -hmm. a wife and three kids, and um, I run a value investment firm, IMA, and and I also write, and I wrote as mentioned several books, but I write articles all the time. And by the way, we have a Substack as well. So you can just look for my name on Substack. You could subscribe to. Okay. I'll put all the links to these yeah, the links yeah, in the yeah. transcript. Yep. Yeah. Um, but I was born in Russia and I moved, my, my, my whole family moved to United States in December 1991. What's interesting about this, actually, I did not live, I was not living in Russia. I was living in the Soviet Union. Okay. And then literally a month later, it stopped, you know, it ceased to exist. So, um, um, so my, uh, the, the reason we moved to Denver, because my father's younger sister left, uh, Moscow in 1979 and she moved to Brighton beach. If you watch Moscow on the Hudson, that movie basically describes your life. Wow. Okay. And then, and then she married the rabbi and, uh, rabbi got a synagogue in, uh, in the Cheyenne, Wyoming out of all places, which is, I don't know if there are any Jewish people there, but you know, that's a different conversation. But, uh, anyway, so, <laughs> and, uh, so, and she invited us over, uh, there was an organization that is, does a lot of good things, actually, not just for Jewish people called Jewish family services. They were in Denver. So my aunt 
you know, decided that it's better for us to move to Denver than to Cheyenne, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. And thank you. Yeah, I keep thanking my aunt every day just for <laughs> that decision alone. So, <laughs> and so you came to, uh, I, I believe you were first studying and then lecturing at, was it the University of Denver? Yeah. yeah. Is- y- yes. Yeah. No, you know, so, yes, I mm. studied, I got my undergraduate degree and a graduate degree at the University of Colorado at Denver. And then I taught finance as an adjunct, which mm-hmm. is a fancy word for part-time. So if you are mm-hmm. a professor <laughs> and like, you know, if you say part-time professor or part-time you know, lecturer, doesn't sound as, you know, as interesting. Sounds, as a, sounds a little casual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But adjunct because most people have no idea what it is. And so, right. so suddenly you sound important. But uh, so I, I taught finance for about seven years. And the reason I actually quit because two reasons. Number one, I absolutely hated the part where I had to give out grades. Mm. I love giving out A's. But I hated giving out D's and F's. Right. And um, so I hated that. Um, but the second part is that after you teach the same class over and over again, it gets old. Yeah. And right. so, and I kind of substituting, and I realized when I write, I can teach, but on the, like, but I, I can teach. Uh, with every article, I teach something, but I don't have to repeat every article. You know, I don't have to repeat this semester after semester. So I can, uh, so I can get to learn new things all the time. Right. And so I quit in Southern Seven. So I haven't taught in like fifteen years. And also, uh, I guess as you mentioned, with your Substack and with your uh, Contrarian Edge page, mm-hmm. you get to reach a much wider audience than just yeah. how many people can fit in the auditorium, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I can I can help a lot more people use my writings than just in a classroom. Yes. Excellent. So um, we were back and forthing a little bit uh, email-wise, and I'd, I'd been reading some of your work recently on, uh, on the housing market, the yeah. U.S. real estate market. And I wanted to kind of get into that because I think that's to to use a, a popular phrase, top of mind uh, for, for most people at the moment with obviously the Fed having met just uh, five days ago, you and I are talking on November the 7th for our readers' uh, edification here, but it's been five days since the widely expected uh, rate hike of 75 basis points that I think most people were paying attention. Most people had kind of expected that, but they were paying more attention to the tenor of Mr. Powell's remarks afterwards. Um, he seems to be speaking fairly directly uh, in in his remarks, saying that the, the job of the Fed is not done at present, we're not looking to pause. Speak, talk of a pause is premature, I think, were his exact words. Um, I wanted to get your take on how you think that shakes out in the housing market, because, uh, you know, obviously there's there's a lot of uh, America's, in particular, middle-class wealth tied up in that asset class. And you've written that you think it's, quote, worse than people think. Uh, yeah. Why is that? All right. Um so if you look at the housing prices from 1999 to, to today, they basically went up about 40%. In less than four years, they went up 40%. Most of that increase happened actually over a three-year period. So the median house today, it's basically United States uh, is about $440,000, probably a little bit less than that, but that's what, it, what it, that's what it was in the beginning of the year. Okay. Um, if you... So the the problem is those prices were fine from affordability perspective where interest rates were more uh, 30-year mortgage was at 3%. Right. When interest rates, when inflation is at 7 or 9%, in, interest rates had to go up. 
Yeah. Even if Federal Reserve did not raise them, they were still gone up, I would argue. Because who would have wanted to buy this uh, this paper when you know when inflation is nine percent and pay you know, and and uh, uh, um, and pay one percent, one or two percent, and we see one or two percent. So interest rates, I think, would have gone up anyway. But so today, when mortgage uh, when mortgage rate is over seven percent, basically, if you're a new buyer and you want to put twenty percent down and you want to buy a house, it's basically it's going to cost you almost twice as much. As it like it's a, it's based, so let, let me just give you a couple uh, a couple numbers. So, if you bought a house in 2019, uh, no, even 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 in 2021, it would have costed you roughly about 420 thousand dollars. Interest rates were three percent, so it would have cost you roughly about 15 thousand dollars a year in mortgage payments. Mm-hmm. When rates go up from three percent to 7.6 as they are today. Now the mortgage payment on it goes up to thirty thousand dollars. So this is what's important to understand that median American household makes about seventy-five thousand dollars a year. Seventy-five thousand dollars a year, or about sixty thousand dollars after tax, roughly. Mm-hmm. So in other words, where mortgage payment when the interest rates were three percent, you know, used to consume twenty-five uh, percent of, of someone's income. Today, it would consume, if you were to buy a house at today's prices, at these interest rates, would consume half of right. someone's income. So housing today is unaffordable. So what has to happen is that for the housing to to, you know, kind of to return to the prices, to return to affordability of 2019 uh, or 2020 or 2021, uh, they basically have to decline like 30 or 40%. Yeah, I saw those numbers. You thirty or forty percent. I, th- I I read those numbers in your in your write up, and yeah. I think for a lot of people that it's difficult to conceptualize that because they've been you know they've been living high on the hog with with yeah. cheap and abundant credit for so long that they think, hey, you know, it, it's been uh, it's been so good for so long. How could this possibly come to an end? But you tap into the emotion of owning a house, how it's different from stocks, takes a lot longer to come down. Uh, but it, it, prices can run up pretty quickly. But there's a there's an emotional component to to owning a home that yeah. doesn't. Uh... Yeah, there, in the American Constitution, there is a there is a guarantee of pursuit of happiness, <laughs> but there is no guarantee of how you know higher housing prices every year. But <laughs> over the last thirty years, we were basically condi- because interest rates actually declined for most of like our adult life, right? Yeah. So therefore, we've been conditioned that housing prices only go up. Right. But they can decline. Yeah, what yeah, that, that'll come as a shock to some to some people. I imagine I'm I'm Australian. You can probably hear from my from my accent, but very similar, very similar. You know, macro setup in Australia where we've we've had obviously funded by you know a commodity bull market and mm-hmm. China entering the world uh, trade organization and, and a bunch of other things. But we've had access to uh, just an exorbitantly large amount of cheap, willing. Credit for so long that we've been led to believe that this is uh, that this is just sort of par for the course. But uh, one of the things that I read in your in your fall letter that I thought was very interesting, and I think it's an important uh, point for people to grasp, and I think you uh, you summed it up really well, is that a lot of people will sort of trot out the argument, and I, you know I've heard it before. I'm sure you've heard it many times, where they'll say, "Hey, look, we." You know, we already had interest rates during the Volcker years or during the 70s and 80s when they were, you know, 14, 16, 18 percent 
Um, and, you know, we had a lot of other similar macro setups as well. We had, you know, high inflation, we had high unemployment, we had um, an oil embargo from, you know, major producing sector of the world, Nixon price shocks, all of this kind of very pessimistic, uh, sour uh, macro setup. But we were able to muddle through and, you know, then we were kind of off to the races after we after we got through the hard part. But this time's different. I, I agree with you, but I, but explain to us why in your mind this is not just the 70s and 80s redux. Because in the 70s and 80s, if you look at the ratio of housing prices to median income, it was half of where, the, where it is today. Hmm. In other words, yes, the interest rates went up a lot, but the housing prices were much, much cheaper in relation to what people made. Yeah. And therefore, and therefore, um, it did not have as much as great. By the way, we still had a recession. Don't get me wrong; we still had a recession. People forget yeah. about it. <laughs> but I think this time impact will be greater. Also, this is very important to understand. When economy, when when we are an economy that has very low interest rates for a long period of time, our behavior changes. Our not just our. When I say our, that includes. Uh, individuals, corporations, and government. Let's say, let's start with the government. That's the most obvious one. We have our debt to GDP is highest, probably in the country's history. We may have to go to World War II era to, you know, to see when it was then. Uh, it's much higher than it was in the 80s. If, mm -hmm. you, look ab if you look about, um, just look about how we get used to finance everything. If you bought a new car, you could get 0% financing. That is gone. I mean, well, zero zero percent financing is basically gone, and therefore, what you're going to start seeing that uh, now everything is going to become a lot more expensive. So it's not. It's a, it's also important. It's a, it's important to understand is that where we coming from? We're coming from it's kind of almost like zero percent interest rates to meaningfully high interest rates, and that, therefore the cost of everything will go up. Mm -hmm. And it's going to seep into every single corner of the economy, uh, and and uh, it's impossible for high interest rates, you know, combined with you know, just your housing market is just one of the mechanisms, um, not to cause a uh, not to cause a recession. And um, let me give you one other uh, uh, important element about housing market. So most Americans today basically have a mortgage, uh, you know, a mortgage, a fixed rate mortgage, 90% Americans have fixed rate mortgage that where they probably pay three of, you know, from two and a half to three and a half or 4% because mm -hmm. people refinances and interest rates decline, right? So here's what happened. Let's say you bought a house for $300,000 and let's say you have a mortgage. Actually, let me give you actual numbers. Uh, mean, uh, average American has a mortgage of about $260,000 if you put together first mortgage, second mortgage. Okay. So, so in other words, average American as of right now has $180,000 home equity. Just, you know, okay. Right. Now, let's say housing prices stay where they are. Let's say they don't even decline. Just keep mm -hmm. this. Okay. If you want to move, if you want to sell your house today um, and move into another house that's a few blocks away, 
you're going to sell your house for $440,000, hypothetically. You take mm -hmm. $180,000 of, uh, of equity, you put it in your house. So new house is going to cost you $440 minus $180. So $260, your mortgage is not going to change, except one thing. Now you'll be paying, instead of 3% interest rate, you're going to pay 7.6. Yeah. And so suddenly <clears throat> that move where you still buy the same four walls, same picket fences, mm -hmm. two and a half dogs, what I'm sorry, two and a half kids <laughs> and a, <you> know, <laughs> two, and a, two and a half kids and a dog. Yep. It, now <laughs> it's going to cost you ten, fifteen thousand dollars more a year. Right. But right. and that's a lot of money. So therefore, I think what's going to happen, you're going to see. What's important to understand is this: when the housing prices go up, when the stock prices go up, um, people feel wealthier. People like you know, so because they feel like they have a the house is worth more, they have more home equity. Mm -hmm. People feel wealthier, and therefore you know they. If you feel wealthier, you're more certain about the future. You go out and spend money. Right. The opposite happens when they decline, when assets decline from stocks uh, uh, to, uh, to housing prices, and when that happens, um, people first of all, as housing prices decline, people are going to have less home equity, but also going to they're going to feel less wealthy, and therefore they're going to spend less with less confidence. Yeah. And that 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 in itself also going to help to weaken the economy. So again, I'm not an economist. I'm a guy who analyzes, you know, I'm a I'm a kind of bottom-up guy who analyzes stocks. But I look at this, you know, I just I, you know, it took me about 20 minutes to go through all this data and just to see that it, it's basically impossible for us not to go into recession. Yeah, I mean and it even uh, even a technical recession this time. I know. I know. In the old uh, the old fashioned days, it used to be two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. I, I'm sure the government has defined that out of existence. But yeah, we. we I think. Uh, I think most people are expecting it. Them them to even yeah. have to admit that we are in a in a recessionary yeah. environment at this point. Let me tell you. Like I'm going to define recession this way here. <laughs> when unemployment will start going up. The, the reason the government kind of got away. We're saying we're not really in recession. It's a because, and they could get away with it because it was supply chain issues, et cetera. A lot of one stuff, one time stuff, fine. And we had 3.3% unemployment. So that's mm -hmm. how they could get away with it. Right. But when unemployment goes from 3% to 6%, it's going to be very difficult to say that we are not in recession. Right. And a and, lot and, of those and, jobs, and, of course, go ahead. No, and and you know, and I uh, and I don't know where unemployment is going to go to. But I'll tell you this: if you are in the, like if you are in California, if you're in Silicon Valley, th th I think the recession there is going to be even more significant than in other parts of the country. Yeah. Well, so let's let's talk about that then. You mentioned, uh, of course, your work as a as a value investor, and we were just powwowing mm -hmm. about our mutual uh, acquaintance, Chris Mayer. Uh, before I, I wanted to just sort of pivot from uh, the real estate market to the work that you do with uh, with investing, because obviously this is one of the other big asset classes: stocks, so-called risk risk assets that are impacted by Fed policy. You know, we'd, we as we were Chris and I were just saying a couple of weeks ago, we'd, it would be lovely to live in a world where we could just do fundamental bottom up, you know, uh, health of a business research mm -hmm. and due diligence and invest in the best. Um, but you know, it makes it very difficult. The Fed can make can muddy the waters uh, sometimes. So, explain to me and explain to our listeners how the kind of deep value investing that you're doing, that Chris is doing, uh, which is driven more by let's say fundamentals than yeah. fad or price over promise. How has that impacted now, even after we've had uh, you know 
with the exception of October, which I think was maybe the best month ever. We've had a, a very tumultuous year, to, to put it mildly. Yeah, so the um, to paraphrase our ex-president, interest, high interest rates made, made value investing great again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, so what is value investing in general? But basically what Chris and I are doing, we are analyzing companies as if you were, even though they're publicly traded, they don't have to be. Like we would, our analysis is not would not be much different if they were not publicly traded. But if I'm let's say I'm analyzing Apple, I'm analyzing Apple is if I was buying the whole company, I said, would I want to be in this business? Mm-hmm. Do I understand it? Do I like the management? What do I think the cash flows are going to be over the next 10 years? Okay, what do I think the company is worth? And then once I figure this out, I said, well, how much discount do I need to its fair value? for that to be an attractive Mm -hmm. investment. And you just keep doing it over and over again over different companies. And what's important to understand, the instant liquidity that stock market provides you, it's it's both a feature and a bug. It's a feature because it allows you to buy and like to sell something. Like if you want to sell a house, it's a, first of all, it takes you a long time to find a buyer. Right, and transactions costs are very high. If I want to sell a stock, like 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 an average stock, I can sell it in seconds, and the difference between the you know the bid and ask spread is going to be tiny, tiny, tiny you know, number. Okay, so that's a feature. The bug is that because you can sell it so instantaneously, your analysis changes, mm-hmm. and a lot of times what happens, people get tricked. Um, so let me give you this analogy. When you go to Las Vegas to gamble, okay, a, when, when somebody you, else goes to vote, I, well, I yeah, like, yeah, let's, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, and I would yeah, never yeah, do that. Yeah, we're responsible yeah, adults here. Yeah, especially yeah. your wife is ten feet apart. Yeah, yeah, so yeah exactly. Like, yeah. Okay, when somebody else, when somebody What's else, you goes, yeah, yeah. Um, that person is not going to be thinking that he's investing or she's investing because you, you when you're in the main of casino you know that you're gambling, okay? And if you don't, then you have a much bigger problem. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now, because you are buying stocks and selling stocks, a lot of people get tricked that they are investing, okay? But the thing is, what I described was value investing. When you analyze businesses, that's investing. When you buy and sell stocks and you treat them as if you were treating just basically as a you were renting them for a day and selling them, you're not investing, you're trading. Or you're a lot of... Or, and, or and speculating. Would, yeah. Speculating, exactly. Gambling. Yes. Yeah. Like I was kind of... Uh, Joel, I was on a... This is six months ago. I was an AMC uh, GameStop uh, call uh, like in one of the Twitter spaces. I just wanted to understand what people are thinking. And there was one woman who said... Like, oh, and I like at some point, I tried to kind of explain them that, guys, you're all going to lose money. Mm-hmm. Because... It, like your, this company is worth ninety five percent less than what you're paying for it, and just went through the math. They didn't care. But there was one thing that one woman said that really stuck with me. She said, "At this point, the GameStop already declined maybe twenty thirty percent or AMC," and she said, "I, uh, I, I bought the stock. I go to the movies all the time. I talk about the stock all the time, and it's still declining. Why investing is so difficult?" Mm. See, that mm. person thought she was investing, but she wasn't. Right. 
And I, so, so I think this is, so the, what we do is not, is invest, like, so, so what I do is, is investing because for, from, you know, I'm treating what, you know, companies I'm buying as businesses. And I think that's, that's the biggest distinction. And I have a long-term time horizon. I was just about to mention the time horizon too, because I've, and again, I've spoken to Chris many times about this, but, you know, the idea that if you, if the money that you're investing in the market, you need for, you need it in five years, you need to pay for the kids college or whatever, you you know, you may, you you may want to question whether that money should be in that particular investment, a longer time horizon where you can insulate yourself against emotional overreactions that we all tend to have, you know, we panic if yeah. uh, things aren't going our way, or we get greedy at the upside, or whatever. But if you have a if you have a long enough time horizon, and you do the due diligence and uh, study the the fundamentals in the beginning, even you know significant drawdowns or you know bear markets that we're seeing right mm-hmm. now. If you've if you're sitting on uh, on companies that you would want to own, whether they were publicly traded or not, uh, certainly that contributes to a fitful, fitful night's rest. Joel, let me give you this insight. If you have a short-term time horizon, volatility becomes your risk, right? In other words, you own a stock <clears throat> and it declines and you need the money at this point in time to pay for kids' education, mm-hmm. then you have to liquidate the stock. And now the decline that could have been permanent, uh, temporary becomes permanent because you had to sell because your time horizon was small. When you have a long-term time horizon, volatility is really not the risk. A lot of times it's an opportunity. The risk is a permanent loss of capital. So when it declines, when the company, when the stock declines, and for fundamental reason, the value of the company has declined as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's a permanent loss of capital. Mm-hmm. When a company's earnings power gets demolished, or when you bought something, like let's say you bought those dot-com stocks that just crashed 70%. Mm-hmm. I bet if you bought almost any technologies company, I'm generalizing, you know, like uh, last October, you're probably going to have a semi-permanent loss of capital. In other words, it's going to take you 10, 15 years to get your money back. Right. Okay. It takes a lot longer so, to build up percentages than it does to see them yeah, wiped out. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, so long-term time horizon becomes extremely important. Yeah, okay. So uh, let's sort of, uh, step back a little bit. I've got so many questions here uh, that I want to get your take on, Vitaly. And uh, it's been uh, you know ten years since we since we caught, caught up. So we, uh, I've got I've got a backlog, but uh, I wanted to to run something by you that that we've been writing about at uh, at Bonner Private Research of late, and it ties into what we're what we're talking about here. And this is the end, or at least. Um, uh, at at least a pause in the you know the gushing of cheap and abundant credit. This may be you know for the first time in multiple decades, for the first time in many young investors or homeowners or stock owners' lifetimes, uh, the first time they're seeing persistent hikes like this, which we we think may be uh, may remain higher for longer. Um, but there are a couple of other drivers that have led to this uh, in our worldview that have led to this um this moment of plenty this age of abundance that we find ourselves in right where we where we're constantly you know if we want any food delivered from uh, you know any style of restaurant around the world we can call up it'll be on our plate in minutes 
you know, we we fly around the world in, in you know using cheap jet fuel and travel in a way that kings wouldn't have been able to travel just going back a hundred yeah. years, and we take yeah. this all for granted. So along with cheap and abundant credit, which man is looking a little shaky, we also have uh, cheap and abundant labor that was essentially in 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 no small part because of uh, half a billion Chinese that entered the. The marketplace and and provided yeah. us with with cheap goods. Uh, this is maybe no, another one of those one time uh, events, and then of course cheap and abundant energy to power both the manufacturing and the distribution of all of those things. But we're seeing now because of various geopolitical um, concerns that each of those drivers is in its own way kind of breaking down. So you know whether it's some would argue weaponization of the dollar or, you know, let's just say high, higher interest rates and a contraction in the mm -hmm. credit markets there. Um, maybe we can go through those those yeah. other ones and I just just get your your general me, take on on that. Let me go through them in the reverse order. So, uh, so if you look at the energy, mm -hmm. um, like right before the pandemic, we started to we started to buy. Unfortunately, I did not see pandemic coming. We started to buy energy companies. Why? Because Energy prices were so low, so low for so long, that we saw that supply there was just disbalance between supply and demand, just because yeah. low oil prices lead to you know decline, you know, decline in supply. So even before the pandemic, you had you already had a shortage of supply, you know, long term supply. Pandemic made it a lot worse. Then the war in Russia, I'm sorry, in Ukraine, makes it even worse because the so number one. The Russian gas is most likely going to be over the market for for a very very long time. It's going like. to, it's going to be, yeah, yeah, yes, and it's going to be very difficult. And it's going to take years before Russia is going to be able to get it out of Russia to other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, like it's it takes years to build a pipeline to China, or whatever. So it's going to be a while. The it's very difficult to say exactly how it's going to play out, but also most likely. The production of Russian oil will decline as well. For mm -hmm. uh, you know, and uh, and the problem with the uh, the, uh, the number one, the, the Western companies left Russia, so they didn't just provide capital; they provided the know-how how to get that oil out of the ground in the very difficult places, right? And once production declines in the cold climates, it's difficult to restart it again. Very general statements, but I would argue that it's safe to bet that production of oil out of Russia is going to be lower, and it's the third mm -hmm. largest producer in the world. So, so you know, low supply before the pandemic, at pandemic, at war, it's very likely the supply will be constrained. The on the on the demand side, you you could argue that recession will reduce the demand. However, historically, the you know the Demand hasn't dec declined just a tiny bit mm -hmm. during the recession, but not a lot. Okay, so I would argue we're probably going to see. Oh, and by the way, I I did not even mention ESG. Like the, right. like, <laughs> I, like I'm not. I promise not to make it political. And if we had a different <laughs> president from a different party in the White House, and one day he said. I, all companies have to drill, and then next day he says all companies should not drill. And yeah. if you if you are, but <laughs> it's a disaster. The messaging is a disaster. Design, but if you are Exxon or any of those companies that have been villainized for doing what people need, mm -hmm. then do you invest billions of dollars in new field developments 
if tomorrow your you know the government come in and say you know those you know those excess money you're making in the high oil prices yeah we want some of that yeah, and it's windfall, so it's, it's windfall uh, tax time it's nationalization yeah, exactly. time it's yeah yeah so my point is it makes it very so what we actually very very those things make things even um even uh, more problematic you know that you know that we're gonna see oil prices you know low oil prices um okay so that's oil um you mentioned that we do we had a globalization mm -hmm. uh over you know previous 20 years basically right yep globalization was deflationary today we're going through uh selective deglobalization the reason it's selective because we are it's not like we're saying let's see if there's a factory in mexico we're going to take it out no we're going to say we're going to now divide our trading partners uh uh, in the group, in the two groups, the ones that we can trust long term and the ones we can't, mm -hmm. the ones that are have a uh, democratic political regime and the ones that don't, and um, so and I think what was what's going to be happening is that we're going to bring a lot more manufacturing from China to countries that are more politically stable, and some of that are already coming to the United States. I mean, the I mean, the uh, we are investing tens of billions of dollars in building some Agadata plants in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they do it for geopolitical reasons. But that means right. also most likely we're going to have a, semiconductors will be more, more more expensive to manufacture here than in Taiwan. So deglobalization, de selective deglobalization de is inflationary. Um, and if you just, if you just do, uh, you know, by the way, China has its own issues. China has a, um, significant demographic problems. So it's a plus. In addition to everything else, they have a zero COVID policy, right. which has been hurting, you know, hurting them and their reputation. And so now Apple- And their supply chains. <clears throat> exactly. Apple now is looking at China and says, do I really want to have my factories in China or all my factories there? Maybe I should move someone to the United States, someone to India, someone to other places. Or do we so, want to have our chip manufacturers in or our chip suppliers in Taiwan if Taiwan is going to become, you know, a dragon snack, uh, to, to put it bluntly? Uh, I, used, I used to live in Taiwan like <laughs> about 12 years ago, and, and they were talking about it uh, then as uh, not, a, not a when, uh, not an if, but a when proposition. And yeah, that was that was 12 long years ago. So I, it seems more of an inevitability. Yeah. At, at and, I would, and, and I tell you this, very few people talk about this, but I would argue... The restrictions we just put on China in the semiconductor sector, that is the first shot, like a significant shot of a cold war towards China. We mm -hmm. basically told China that, like what actually told American and Western European companies, you cannot sell them advanced microchips. You cannot sell them equipment that helps them to manufacture those uh, advanced microchips. And this is the interesting one. If you find yourself an employee in China, working for one of those factories that manufactures uh, advanced semiconductor chips, you're going to lose your citizenship. Mm. So that is, you know, so our relationship with China are not getting better; they're just getting worse. Right. So anyway, so the another reason why you know more and more companies will, will be taking out their production out of China. That actually, by the way, there is some positive here as well because that makes. That means we're going to manufacture more in the United States, which actually, you know, 
helps our labor, but it's also going to make our labor more expensive as well, by the way. So it's a, it's a, it's a more nuanced uh, discussion here. But anyway, you look at this. So from that perspective, everything what you just discussed so far is inflationary. Now, if you look at the, in the United States, um, higher interest rates, and when I say higher, they don't need to be at this level. They can just be higher than they were a year ago are incredibly inflationary for the United States. Why? We have a, uh, sorry, we, uh, I forget how much debt we have, $31 trillion, right? Yeah, 31, $31 trillion trillion. just passed last month, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So just think about 1% increase in interest rate for federal government, that's a $310 billion. Um, like if you look about, that's how much roughly, how much we spend on education. 2% increase, that's roughly how much we spend on defense. 3% increase, that's roughly how much we spend on Social Security. So again, I promise you one thing. I'm sure, I'm quite sure of this. None of those things will get canceled or reduced right. because that's not what politicians do. They, this is how you lose your job as a politician. <laughs> but what's going to happen, you're just going to print more money, which is inflationary. So right. I think, like, if you and I talked a couple of years ago, I would have sounded a lot more wishy-washy, like inflation versus deflation. Mm -hmm. And I would have basically, I would have said, I don't know. And here's the argument for both sides. And I'm going to invest as if both are going to happen. Today, I think the probabilities have shifted more towards inflation, long-term mm -hmm. inflation than deflation. Even though in the short, if you go into recession, recession is deflationary. So in the short right. term. Yeah. But it's, I mean, and it's not as if... Uh... It's not as if we're we're starting from anywhere within the Fed's acceptable range of what it claims to desire inflation at around that sort of two percent sweet spot. It, I mean, yeah, yeah. as if it as if it knows what if what the perfect number ought to be. But I mean, we're already at uh, whatever it is eight eight plus percent. We're going to get another read come out uh, this week, I think. So keep our eyes on that. But uh, it, we're a long way in real terms. In real interest rate terms, we're still a long way uh, behind the curve, as they say. So there's a lot of catch up still to do, and a lot of things can break in the in the interim before they get to that uh, to that terminal rate, as they say. Joe, I want to take, I want to, I want to address one topic. It just really bothered me uh, when um, when uh, Ben Bernanke received Nobel Prize. Uh, Nobel Prize. You know, I actually have a perfect analogy to explain it. Like actually, this this makes so much sense. Actually, if you think about it, so. Because you have to look for the reasons why they gave it to him. They basically said they're giving it to him because he understood he understood the relationship between the financial system and interest rates or something like that. So I, th I like thought it was because he he had the courage to act for Tali. Wasn't that the, well, that, that was that, the courage that, of that, the that, name that, of his well, book, right? <laughs> that's right. It came the courage to act. Yes. But but then I realized here's my analogy for this. It's almost like it's like giving a prize to a person who starts the fire, then puts it out, and then writes a book about it. Right. Okay. My, my, and, my courage to act. Joel, my the arsonist Bowman. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. It's like it's a it's like it's a, it's like really it's like it's like really like giving a prize to an arsonist who also put out the fire. But but here's the thing. This is a very important. You know, this is a very important point. What's going on today in our economy? is a direct consequence yeah. of what's been happening over the last 15, 20 years, or probably longer than that. And so 
yes, our economy did not go to Stone Age and 2008, 2009. So thanks, Ben Bernanke, for that. <laughs> but number one, you did start that fire to begin with. And so, right. and you do when you put out. But arguably, the fire we have today has been caused by the Federal Reserve's policy of the last many, many years as well. So right. this a is good point. It's a good point yeah. to raise too. It's uh, I think a lot of people, you know, 12 or 10 years is is a long time in the memory of a 30-year-old investor or a 25-year-old investor. So we're, you know, we're going back into ancient history for, for a lot of people who, uh, you know, who are sort of just around the traps now. But yeah, I mean, Mr. Mr. Bernanke's career was one uh, distinguished without, I think, a single blemish of success where he, he failed to call pretty much every meaningful and significant uh, moment of his time, including the, the mortgage-backed security crisis, which grew up right underneath his his nose, which brings us full tilt back to the to the uh, to the housing market. But I realize uh, as we're we're speaking just here, and we've uh, covered a little bit of ground here, but. I don't want to want to sound just pessimistic that we're sort of identifying these uh, these things around the world. Certainly, we have to be mindful of them. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about your latest book because uh, you know, in addition to investing in turbulent times and you know keeping abreast of the latest geopolitical uh, fracas, such as it is, you know, we still have to get up and put our pants on one leg at a time and enjoy our family and, you know, and make the most yeah. of the day. So tell us a little bit about why you wrote uh, your your latest, which is called Soul in the Game. I'm I'm assuming that's uh, some uh, somewhat influenced by Mr. Taleb's skin in the game. Is Abs- that- absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Very yeah, good. Absolutely. Yeah. And he actually endorsed actually this book too. So that's good. I saw that. Yeah. That, that was a nice feather in your cap. Congratulations. That's right. Um, Joe, let me, I'm going to ask you a question, but let me just, I want to end the investment part on the positive note as well. As a value investor, I've never been more excited in my life because it's suddenly stock picking is back again. Like Mm. being a rational investor, making rational decisions. When interest, like when interest rates are very low, the bigger the story, the uh, the greater the, the no the greater. The greater part of your imagination, the story can capture, the more money you're going to make as a public company. Mm-hmm. So this is why you had all these companies trading at these insane valuations, right? Because they were not trading fundamentals. They were because it didn't matter, you know, because they can say, listen, in 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 2040, we're going to make this much money. Right. And since interest rates are zero, it's you know, it might be as well be today because they discounted zero uh, percent interest rate. Now today. They, what what uh, high interest rates did? They deflated. They deflated a lot of bubbles, and they brought back common sense. So, as an investor today, I'm more optimistic about investing than I've been in years. So that's from one perspective. Now let's go to the book. Um, so, um, so I've been writing about investing for a long time, and then at some point I had this realization that, and I'm going to quote Freddie Mercury, who said. There must be more to life than this. Yeah. I thought you were going to say. Be, I thought you were going to say, "We will rock you." Or okay. And we will rock. No, that's that's that's, <laughs> that's my next book. That's my next. Book. Okay. That's a, <laughs> that's geology. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. No, but I, and I, this is when I realized that 
then this is when I started writing about topics that were outside of investing. So I started about parenting, stoic philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, classical music, which I'm, you know, uh, I'm a big, uh, I'm a huge uh, fan of classical music. And over time, that became a very big part. Like today, maybe forty percent of my writing is actually focuses on other topics than investing, and it's very dear to me. So um, this book. So like, let me tr- let me try to put it this way: when I when I uh, when I help when I invest cl- when I help clients in AMA, I just help three hundred something families. So my impact is significant on a small number of people. When I write investment articles, I help a larger group, group of people. But again, it's still limited to people who just care about investing. Mm-hmm. With my articles that that are talk about parenting or classical music, well, maybe classical music, not the case here, but because it's a <laughs> usually a much smaller segment. But <laughs> my articles about parenting um, have a significant, um, uh, so my, my article about, uh, about parenting or Stoics can help a lot more people. Right. And this is why I wanted to write this book, because I wanted to help more people. This book is a completely altruistic endeavor. Uh, I just, you know, I just really want people to read the book and have a neg- and have a net positive impact on them. That's it. And ha- and how has it been your? Because I, I know my wife uh, Anya Leonard again at Classical Wisdom. Your your podcast yeah. with her will be, will be up on their page shortly. I think. Uh, you know, read the book. I, I have it on my on my list here, and she was interested in uh, in the Stoic aspect of it. Of mm-hmm. course, uh, writing about classics herself, and so uh, it's not hard to understand i think why we are enjoying this recrudescence of stoicism given given everything that's going on uh, around the world but in in kind of a nutshell how how have you found uh the philosophy some say the art of practicing uh, stoicism in your own life grounding uh, especially during moments of of uncertainty such as we so i, I got to tell you I, I feel i feel kind of i tell you this i feel somewhat conflicted about what I'm about to say. Here's why. Because I am a contrarian in nature and I usually don't like kind of when I when I find that everybody agrees with me <laughs> uh, that I find kind of a little bit uh, uh, what's a good word, good word for this? A, a little bit uneasy. Unsettling. Yeah. But, yeah, unsettled. Yes. But over the last three years I picked up three, you know, three different things that became like like three biggest fads. I'll give you all three: <laughs> chess, mm-hmm. pickleball, and stoic philosophy. Okay, I, I I don't know what pickleball is, but I'm uh, down with. Uh, I think the Queen's Gambit had a lot to do with chess. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, stoic philosophy is off to the races. But what is pickleball? <laughs> you don't know pickleball? I'm I'm see I'm I'm either just oh my god you know, the, the, terminally the, 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 uncool you know, you, or just late yeah. to the game. <laughs> no, this is a it's a huge sport in the United States now. Okay. It's imagine if you're playing kind of a it's a it's like a, a mini, miniature version of tennis oh. with a different ball, which is like I I, I play with that like I, I you play you play a lot in pairs, and I I go play with my with a buddy of mine who is about my my age. And you play against people who are seventy years old, and they kick our butt. So this no, is okay. that, yeah, so it's a very very popular sport. You could but light anyway, up on some, hum- some humility while you're on the court. <laughs> that's what, a lot, lot, lot of humility. Yes, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so Stoic philosophy, I 
I want to say I want to I want to I hope I was on the early side of you know kind of only early wave of the of the Fed, but I I what happened was I read. Um, I read uh, I read this quote by Epictetus, and that quote said it talked about the Academy of Control, and it said some things are up to us, some things aren't. Joel, this is probably the most banal quote you're ever going to read. But then he goes to explain what are things that are up to us. And then you find out that there are so few of them. It's right. basically it's basically your your values and, and how you act. Everything else is not up to you. Like right. nothing else is up to you. Once you once you realize that, that is actually incredibly liberating. So I went back and started to read more about Stoic philosophy, and I was blown away by that. Why? Well, so it started 2,000 years ago in Greece, right? And what's interesting about this, how little people have changed over the last 2,000 years. <laughs> it's a blink. It's a blink. Like you, you read uh, Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius or, or Seneca, those are the kind of three main Stoics whose writings uh, you know, kind of uh, live through the, you know, through the day. You find that they're talking about things that we're talking about Debating about today, I'll give you one example, which is Seneca has this like spends a whole paragraph talking about how people are wasting their time, how they constantly you know distracted by frivolous things, and it goes on and on and on about things like this. You would think he's talking about iPhone, Facebook, and Snapchat, uh -huh, right? Yeah. And, he, and he's talking. You know, there were some other distractions two thousand years ago. They were different. This is this is in his article on uh, the shortness of life. Uh, yes, I think. I think so. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So, and this is when you realize that what I think, if I was a marketing agent for Stoic philosophy, I would call it Stoic practice. The word philosophy, mm. which actually means just love of wisdom, is somewhat intimidating because we think yeah. about kind of skinny, weak white guys, old white guys with beards <laughs> who philosophize about things we don't understand, right? Sure. But Stoic philosophy is really Stoic practice. And all it's, all, and all it's trying to do is trying to min minimize negative emotions in your life. Just trying to bring more tranquility in your life by, mm -hmm. by removing negative stuff. And so when I realized this, I was completely smitten by that because what happens the way I look at it, it's basically, it's an operating system for life. Um, when we are born, our parents basically tell us, kind of help us to navigate through life little by little. Then our friends, then the books, then things happen to us and we try to adjust. And what Stoic philosophy does is, so so we are kind of, our behavior a lot of times or how we behave is kind of, it's a Frankenstein kind of, uh, operating system based on now a whole bunch of random factors. Stoic philosophy is, I think, is a, I would argue, or Stoic practice is a lot more um, organized. It's, 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 it provides, provides, provides a very well-structured operating system. That's what really attracted me to Stoic philosophy. Excellent. Well, Vitaly, I think you've, you've put uh, enough on the table to whet people's appetite if they haven't already checked it out, both in your book uh, and I'll link to this again in the transcript of this of this podcast. But Soul in the Game is the name of the book. Uh, Vitaly, thank you so much for spending an hour of your afternoon with me. I really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it too. And we hope to have you back 
on again sometime soon. Joel, thank you very much. Thank you. Excellent. Cheers, mate. Appreciate it.